Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Well, welcome back to Radio KBPV, and uh, welcome in particular to our Tombstone Tours of 2023. And uh, if you've been following the podcast, you know that through the spring and summer of this year, we've been presenting last year's uh, Tombstone Tours that we did at the Pioneer Cemetery here in Pincher Creek. And uh, you know that we've also been promoting... Uh, what our plans were for this summer's tombstone tour, which was not actually in a graveyard. It was on the grounds of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village itself. So uh, this naturally was a virtual tour, not uh, exactly in a cemetery, but uh, we had representations of uh, a selected local pioneers and uh, historical characters who made significant trailblazing contributions to our frontier settlement but who had passed away elsewhere. Uh, I am uh, speaking about this right now as a matter of introduction to our tombstone tours which of course will be episodic and will be divided into 16 episodes that you will hear on Radio KBPV every Saturday morning for the next 16 weeks or so. So that should keep you going through the fall. So here in episode three, we're going to take a look at whiskey trader Fred Canoose, born 1847, died 1922. A frontiersman, trader, pioneer character, friend to Kootenay Brown. Uh, this reading is by myself, Ranger Gord Tolton, in a long and uh, probably overdone rambling diatribe, right in front of Kootenay Brown's cabin. So our next presentation is on Fred Canoose. And Fred Canoose was also a frontiersman in this area and an early explorer. We're not sure whether he's more of a frontiersman and a character than the white guy that's going to make the presentation, which is Ranger Gord. So I'll leave it in the audience's hands to decide who's more of a frontiersman. Gord? Fred Canals is in the house. Well, there's our flinty eyed back shooter right there. And of course, if you take a look at Fred Canals' name, that tells you it probably rhymes with louse. Um, it could also pronounce uh, Fred Canoose with rhymes with loose, and all of these apply. <laughs> now, I have a fair warning for this biography. Fred's not a nice guy. But when we moralize our country, uh, we need to take the bad with the good. So I'm doing my share with Fred Canoose. There's a lot of good, I'll do the bad. 
I've always been fascinated by a particular and peculiar breed of folks that had the run of southern Alberta as we know it for a few short years. And that's the whiskey traders from Montana, whose exploits were so daring and so dangerous and so devious that at one point in time, just as Canada had barely inherited this land, it was known to the Americans as just plain whoop-up. The entire region, not just the fort. One of the most notorious of these scoundrels, of course, is our subject tonight, Fred Canoose. I'm going to use Canoose. Just to let you know what you're in for, historian Grant McEwen called him a frontiersman of the most devastating variety. Few characters exhibited the riotous nature of the whiskey trade better, and few deserved the appellation of scalawag more than he did. Henry Alfred Canoose came into the world on October 14, 1847, in Woodstock, New Jersey, the son of lawyer Jacob and Canoose and uh, Hannah Hall, and uh, had five uh, siblings as well. But Fred's mother died in 1852 when he was just five, and he lost an important tether to the concept of right and wrong. Jacob relocated to the family to Peoria, Illinois, in 1855, where the father remarried. And by 1860, the family was living in Pike, Illinois. Having heard about the new gold rush in Montana, Papa Jacob relocated his clan again in 1865 and organized a wagon train from Omaha over the Oregon Trail and branched up to the Bozeman Trail and then finally to Helena, where the astute legal eagle invested in freighting and mining. Well, the Caduce family finally settled permanently in 1868 to Fort Benton on the Missouri River where the elder Canoose was a community pillar, as you would call it in those days, respected attorney and whose surgeon in Moterna would rise to become a magistrate and he would prosper as well, as would his sons in uh, mining and cattle around Bozeman Billings and Fort Benton. But then there was Fred. Uh, that Jacob Canoose was a respected lawyer and that the brothers had money was fortunate for Fred would frequently be in need of, le of both legal advice and cash. Uh, the frontier atmosphere suited Fred like a dark alley suits a cat. And he found work in the buffalo robe, mercantile and liquor trade. First as a teenager with the American Fur Company, before its bankruptcy around the time of the Civil War. And then he signed on with the trading firm of Carroll and Stell out of Benton. In the fall of 1869, he traded out of a post on the Marias River, not far from Shelby. And that November, he was issued a gambling license by the Montana Territorial Government. And that was their first mistake. Uh, but through the winter of 1869 and 70, uh, John Healy and Alf Hamilton scored a cool 50,000 U.S. dollars in trading buffalo robes on the north side of the medicine line at Fort Whoopup. And the following trading season saw a number of uh, Montanans trying to imitate, traveling north to try their hand at getting rich on the buffalo trade in buffalo robes and pel wolf pelts. Now one of the first things to get used to in the documenting this region is the scarcity of accurate dates, so a lot of sloppiness exists in pioneer recollections. That's probably why I fit so well in this era. Uh, but when you're dealing with folks who live on the fringes of society, they sometimes get the years wrong. So there seems to be a little gap in time, and a note suggests that Fred may have been trading around Waterton Lake as early as 1870-71. This is true, he probably just did his business out of the back of a wagon or a tent, and sold his take in the spring. Uh, to give Fred his due, he did try his hand in the law business, and sometime in the fall of 1871, he managed to become appointed as the sheriff of Choteau County, which in that day made up about a quarter of unsettled Montana. 
but the respectability ends there, especially when you consider that uh, all of Fred's predecessors in the same office had been just about as awful as he was. Uh, in fact, the one that was uh, responsible for the Cypress Hills Massacre. So we're a long way from Gary Cooper and Matt Dillon territory with these ne'er-do-wells. But I don't mind telling you that uh, John J. Healy later on would take the office seriously. I wrote the book on him. Uh, but Fred Canoose did not take the office seriously. He'd no more than pinned the badge on when most of Fort Benton's male population followed Healy and Hamilton north into the road business on Canadian territory. The boom was on and you can expect Fred Canoose to accept a measly monthly stipend as a sheriff. So he spent very little time catching criminals and somehow wang even wangled a leave of absence to pursue his fortune on the north side of the medicine line in another country. While Choteau County's forgiveness was motivated by business, uh, men like Canoose did more for Fort Benton's economy by trading for hides and bringing them back than, than uh, he, they did in peacemaking. And I suppose it didn't hurt to have Dad in the judge's office either. In the fall of 1871, uh, his leave of absence saw him organize a party to build a post on the Belly River not far away from Standoff. Not far away from where Joe Kipp had earlier established uh, Fort Standoff in the previous year. And he called this Fort Stide at the time. The hunter who'd shot and amassed the buffalo furs and the woman who'd done the skinning and tanning of the hide and processed the pemmican would come into the room as a pair. Both had a stake in their value of the harvests and both came in to participate in the deal. Uh, the wife would come in with the party and dicker for what flowers and blankets she wanted and when she was through she'd hand trade tokens to her man and he'd buy whiskey. The woman needed and wanted the items so needed in her work. Sewing needles, awls, metals, copper pots and pans or bolts of cloths or items, practical items. Uh, then to maintain the peace the woman would allow the man his due when she was through she would hand something to her man and that was usually whiskey or guns. It was like allowing someone out night out with the boys or letting them go to the tool section at Canadian Tire on a Saturday morning after she'd brought the groceries. <laughs> now you may notice that whiskey trading scoundrels aren't always great mixers in business and life and through the winter the Fort Stide gang broke up. Fred and the partition of the partners went into the Porcupine Hills and traded out of a small shelter in a coulee. We should tell you about one of these partners, a guy that we'll soon hear a lot about. Jim Neighbors. Well, surprise, 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 he's no relation to Gomer Pyle. <laughs> Jim was known among his peers as Jim the Bluffer, as a guy who instigate manners but then backs down when pressed. We all know somebody like that. <laughs> After a successful season of fur gathering, Canoose and his porcupine coolie partners were taking their bounty back to Benton in the spring of 1872. Somewhere in the region between the Rim and the Marias River, so between Sweetgrass and Shelby roughly, Neighbors started to goad Knauss over the share in the robes. They were about 15 miles north of the Marias when Knauss and Neighbors, as partners will, got into a terrific argument over some matter or another. Some said it was about a horse. But this time, Knauss's ornery temper was having no truck with Jim Neighbors' mind games. Claiming Neighbors had drawn and fired first, Knauss called Jim's last bluff and shot Neighbors dead out of the saddle. When the train arrived to Fort Benton, word queried quickly of the shooting, but there was no arrest. Though an absentee lawman, Fred Canoe still had his badge in this particular bailiwick of peer anarchy. County officials were quick to pull that badge, but still no arrest was conducted. Canoe claimed that neighbors fired first and although he attempted to have the affair cleaned up by the proper authorities, but no action was taken. All knew he was guilty, but nothing was done. 
It might have been his father's connections, the fear of his temper, probably a little from column A and column B. But apparently there was pressure to sweep the fair under the rug. And as nonchalant as B, Fred sold his furs, pocketed his cash, walked away a free man, and while the courts dithered on what to do with him, he went back across the north side of the line and no one went after him. To keep the weak arm of Montana law far enough away, uh, Canoe struck a deal with Johnny Healy and Alf Hamilton at Whoop Up to open a branch fort up on the Elbow River, right where downtown Calgary is today. But why Healy put Canoose on the payroll or even harbored him is a mystery. Uh, Fred was so far from a dip diplomat he could said to enjoy the suffering inflicted on his customers. Still, he pooled his resources on a bull train of goods and supplies along with Howell Harris and a number of other men, including Pincher Creek's own bedrock Jim Scott. Again, no relation, BJ. <laughs> We've established this before. Uh, but that party built no less than three posts at the Medicine Tree on the Highway Hood River in the fall of 1872, just east of the present town of High River, an interesting example of cooperative competition in this time. Um, that mission accomplished, Fred, Bedrock Jim and Saul Abbott took their share of the team in the supply train and carried on to open the Elbow Park uh, uh, post. Uh, Probably it was, a, uh, just to let you know, when I say fort, it's probably about as big as that new gazebo there. Uh, but in February of 1873, a trading party of the Bloods under the leadership of White Eagle, I'm sorry I don't have the, uh, of the translation, uh, came to the elbow. Disagreement in these trades when languages were rarely mutually understood is common. And what got into this argument started, but a blood by the name of Making a Fire got into a row when a trader wrapped one of his customers harshly on the head with the butt end of the revolver. Somehow a stabbing also occurred. And in the resulting melee, as Fred and Saul were trying to evict, uh, Making a Fire drew and fired wildly, and a Canoose employee by the name of Joe Muffroff fell dead. I don't think he's in any relation to the Tom, Stompin' Tom Connors character. Um, another version indicates, oh, never mind, sorry. Canoose apparently tried to parley, but the talks ended up with guns ablazing. And as he rushed back into the stockade, uh, Canoose, Saul Abbott, and a native woman, probably one of the wives, fired through the loopholes and killed the blood party leader, White Eagle, and at least two others. Things are serious now. An employee named Fisher turned craven and dug himself a foxhole in the storeroom floor to wait out the fight. After three days, the Bloods called the truce to carry away their dead. While Canoe lavished a whole $50 in trade goods to a Blackfoot and snuck off to get word down to Spitzy that they, they're in a bit of trouble up here. Within a couple of days, uh, reinforcements arrived uh, across the 30-odd miles across the prairie that now constitutes half of Calgary. But by then, the Bloods had withdrawn. And uh, there were two traders wounded, and Fred Canoe himself took a bullet that blew his shoulder away. Well, the Elbow River Post at that time was abandoned. It would be reopened within a few weeks by Donald W. Davis, who we have met a few years ago at our Tombstone Tours in Fort McLeod. But as far as Canoose, he was taken to Spitzy by wagon, where Saul Abbott removed the bullet, transferred again to Whoop Up, where Johnny Healy arranged for a fast two-horse carriage where he could lay down in the bed. Uh, in what had to be Southern Alberta's first ambulance ride, Fred was transferred to Helena after 62 days and 300 miles. Dr. J.S. Glick performed an operation that saved his arm from amputation, likely his life, but it was a fairly uh, a lame arm for the rest of his life. That he was, his life was spared 
um, was important because there are still people that want to hang him. During his convalescence at the in Fort Benton, uh, judge the old Judge Knauss charm did not impress the United States Deputy Marshal Charles Hard, a sworn enemy of the whiskey trade. And in July 1873, he arrested Fred and delivered him to stand trial in U.S. District Court for the murder of Jim Neighbors. But Knauss's lawyers were not cowed and managed to get the federal charge thrown out as the U.S. court had no ju jurisdiction on the murder scene. You can tell they're just kind of picking flies out of the, uh, you know what, right here. And uh, that it was a matter for Choteau County. Well, that's when the prosecutors took out their map and staked their case on jurisdiction. Perhaps they felt the elder Canoose as a judge had too much influence in the courts, and that was likely true. So by claiming the neighbor shooting as having taken place in Deer Lodge County, the neighboring county, the prosecutors were playing games and doing an end run. Um, the trial was finally held on August 23, 1873 in the county seat of Deer Lodge. And uh, Knauss's uh, party that had been on in the, uh, in the, uh, at the scene of the crime were subpoenaed. As witnesses, it was proved out, proved out that the murder scene was actually a Choteau County location and Knauss was acquitted. So by the time the Choteau officials processed another warrant, Fred was back across the border and beyond extradition. Remember, this is before Mounties as well. The matter was never pursued again, but this is not the end of his rabble-rousing. Ah, okay, I think the children are out of earshot here. So, uh, Canoose was known as Kainakwan. That means blood Indian man, and that means that he, uh, his interests were in more than a few me members of the fairer sex of the blood tribe, distracted by fairs of both the heart and the loins. <laughs> the country marriage as trader natives relations were referred was a long tradition in the fur trade and as we know it's the birth of the Métis nation but it wasn't always romance often as it was a business relationship. We'll never know how Fred became to be paired with Makakai and I'm just probably White Eagle of the Blood Tribe um, who actually happened to be the daughter of Revenge Walker who was the blood wife of D.W. Davis. You've got to have a charts and a lot of red string to follow these guys <laughs> and a relative of the blood he'd killed at Elbow Park makes your head spin a little bit but at least we can track that Fred with uh, I'm gonna try that again Makakaki I know that's wrong sorry uh, fathered five children between 1884 and 1896 and that line is actually perpetuated today on the reserve in the Shade family and his uh, activities also extended to no less than Natawista, the gracious blood women who had married the legendary Alexander Culbertson of the American Fur Company and had retired with him to Fred's hometown of Peoria, where Natawista and Culbertson had become part of the town social set. But when their business interests failed, the Culbertsons left Illinois, returned to a Mo a Montana amid the whiskey trade, and found the area and the Blood Nation in upset as the small talks that had killed many of her people. Alexander lost his fortune and crawled into the bottle. Natawista left Culbertson and returned to her, her people of her birth at the standoff flats, and that gave her a unique place of trust in the Kainawa as an elder. But she had also turned to drink, and that vulnerability led her into the arms of, you guessed it, old Fred. <laughs> with whom it was said he actually fought a duel over with a cowboy named Fisher. She lived with Fred at Fort McLeod where he used Natawista as a trophy to introduce himself and his business into more camps 
and then cast her off when she'd outlived her use. Natawista moved into the lodge of her grandnephew Chief Mood and died in 1894. Now in 1873, Fred Canoose established Fort Warren, which was on the Old Man River, we're at least getting closer to home here, a couple miles east of what would soon be the site of Fort McLeod. And as happens with Fred, in the spring of 1874, a fight occurred with the visiting party of the Kootenai. Outgunned, Canoose sent a rider over to Whoop Up, that means we're getting kind of a, a pattern arriving with this guy. By the time aid arrived and the fight was over, Canoose was victorious, but with one or two of the Kootenai left dead. Charles Shaft, who was among the reinforcements, described what happened when he, one of Canoose's men, a guy named Jack, tried to interpret the battle for the new people that just arrived. And in so doing, accidentally fired his gun into a container full of gunpowder <laughs> and blew the building that they were in apart with the men escaping the blast with a few powder burns. So be careful when you tell stories. After the Mounties arrived in 874, uh, Fred built a nearby store, but left it behind for a few years, perhaps for his safety. And he headed into the mountains where he went into business at the Dardanelles of the Waterton Lakes, either in business with or in friendly competition against our old friend Kootenay Brown, who had himself arrived with his family after his own narrow brush with the grand jury of Montana. Out of distance with the Mounties, Fred Canoose remained totally unrepentant as a whiskey purveyor, consistently flaunting the law, risking arrest, and cheerfully paying the fines just to keep selling his bottled wares to whoever had the cash or the furs, be it the American Blackfoot, the Kootenai, or the Ponderay. But soon Canoose was foiled as the U.S. Army and the Marshal Service prevented the American natives from coming across the border. Well, if you can't beat him, join him. So Fred went back to Fort McLeod to operate his Canoose house, and that's the building that today is still standing inside the Fort Museum in McLeod sometimes trading legally across the counter or selling to the individual Mounties themselves for cash. He ran a blacksmith shop, which is always a lucrative business, and sometimes he'd meet you at the back door across the creek for something a little less legal. Canoose's alcohol dealings ran long past the NWMP forced prohibition when he uh, ran not in established business, but sometimes in remote coolies and back trailers, just kind of like a back alley drug deal. But the police reports named Canoose as being arrested six times for either bootlegging, gambling, or promoting prostitution. He collected enough charges from the police to chink the walls of a cabin. But as long as there was cash to be made from selling whiskey, whether it be behind the backs of the Mounties or even to them on the sly, Canoose was not one to let the law get in the way of his citizenship. From deep pockets, the fines were always cheerfully paid up. In one court appearance before none other than Justice James McLeod, uh, he sought to confuse the court by going into a story about the rules of gambling. McLeod overruled his obfuscation and said, oh, Wait a minute, Mr. Canoose, the bench has played a little poker too. <laughs> his lack of fear was exhibited by a comment to a reporter made in his senior years, who asked whether it was true whether that he was on the Canadian prairies before the police came. Canoose cracked, Son, I was the reason they came. <laughs> Well, there finally came a time for Fred to establish legitimate trade, given the watchful eye of the nearby Redcoats. Uh, and some sources say the Canoes House also housed a drugstore. But we have very little evidence of any pharmaceutical training. Let's just remember, this is the era of legal heroin, cocaine, and laudanum, and leave our assumptions right there. Here's a fun quote from his, tribute, from his obituary about a trigger warning. 
He sold patent medicines sitting in a cabin surrounded by Indian skulls and bones to give the establishment the proper atmosphere. <laughs> nice man. <laughs> but now for a little redemption, Fred Canoose is credited as a forebearer of the ranching industry. Traders like him were the first to experiment with keeping livestock, and in the fall of 1877, he trailed in 21 cows and a bull from Montana and turned them out on the prairie near McLeod. Come the spring, the cattle flourished, and Canoose's little herd had produced a small crop of calves to eat up on the then free grass. And many of Fred's confederates with shady backgrounds and other behaviors flourished first as squatters and then on homesteads and Dominion government leases. A number of discharged Mounties uh, like uh, Alf Shirtliff and Ed Monsell followed the trader's example and with the benefit of a land grant warrant for the, their service and with access to Ontario British Cam Capital, the Trader Mountie Alliance became the foundation of success for the world-renowned Alberta cattle industry that in 1879 would have its stamp approval put on it by none other than the Governor General of Canada and Sir John A. Macdonald. But Knauss also knew his horse flesh and how to run side bets. On Victoria Day in 1876, three of his horses, Forrest King, Sleepy and Kate, won or placed in all of the heats against horses run by Mounties or other traders, or Pincher Creek's pioneer banker, Henry Hyde. Horse betting was a source of much of Canoose's income and he bought uh, breeding horses from Charles Geddes of Pincher Creek. As Fred entered the second half of his life, in which he should not have survived the first, he seemed to have mellowed a bit, and that may have been due to a more serious attempt at a peaceful, prosperous life. In 1897, 50-year-old Fred was wedded to Emily Chambers in Fort McLeod. We won't say that he cleaned up his act, but there were less shootings and court appearances. There are rumors of business dealings with old trading partners, and deals that remain as rumors or things that were kept off the books. Sketchy sources have inve him investing in William Samuel Lee's Hot Springs Sanitarium at Frank, or helping Marcella Mark Farland manage the Charan coal mine at Lesbridge after the drowning death of Nicholas Charan. Uh, he likely did have a coal mine somewhere. Owning a coal mine in those was times was like a milk cow. Everybody had one. And I do have a document showing him as a partner in the Northern Coal and Coke Company with Harry Matheson in Blairmore. And there's little old chance that old Fred would not have been on the hunt for f the Foss Lemon Mine that so obsessed Lafayette French. These rumors drive you crazy, as they did Lafayette French, and more on that later. But did he operate a drugstore in Blairmore in the early 1900s? I can't even tell anymore. What I do know, and what you're probably wondering, when I'd involve Pancha Creek! And is that Fred Canoose did indeed live and do business right here, in fact, across the street from the doors of Pioneer Place. The Waldorf Hotel, later housing the co-op lumber yard, and uh, was established in 1900 as a temperance hotel. Surprising word that in 1909, the provi provider of the hotel's cafe and pool room was H.A. Canoose, by now using his initials to mask his less than temperate past. By all accounts, Fred kept his restaurant and his nose clean while in the Waldorf, but let's never forget that the back door opens into the trees along the creek, if you get my drift. <laughs> Uh, by the early 1910s, Fred and Emily are working their way west, moving first to Fernie and finally living their sunset years in Washington State. They operated a hotel and pool hall in the lumbering town of Chehalis, north of Portland, and then later moved to Kapausen, near Tacoma. 
Uh, while in their Washington residence in 1912, Fred got a letter one day from Calgary from a rodeo promoter named Guy Wiedek. Now besides being a trick roper, Guy wanted to throw on this rodeo and western spectacle that you would also celebrate Alberta's wild and woolly local history. This of course is the Calgary Stampede. In his $100,000 budget, Wiedek would build a replica of Old Fort Whoop-Up and he put out a call for the surviving whiskey traders to attend. Lafayette French, who was at, living at Blackfoot Crossing at the time, declined on the reason that uh, he claimed that if another trader that was invited saw Lafayette in Calgary, French would be shot on sight. Fred Canoose accepted his RSVP. And for the first week in September of 1912, Fred cheerfully oversaw the Ford exhibit and held court like a living artifact for a week, embellishing his stories to reporters, visitors, and anyone else eager to lap up his tall tales and of his notorious career. The public of the present day are laboring under a misapprehension concerning the old traders. A sort of stigma is attached to them. But let me tell you emphatically that the traders of those days were not rescue traders in the sense that is now understood. Okay, Fred, sure. Then as the reporters went back to type up their story and the bottles were empty, it was back to Washington State. But he may, just may, have been on a, made a side trip before leaving the country. Remember Lafayette French? Well, it was in that same month of September of 1912, after the stampede ended, French's cabin on the Highwood River mysteriously caught fire and burned up with the aging Lafayette inside. Some said it an accident, some bl blamed the curse of the lost lemon mine. But I'm not making any accusations about a threat being fulfilled, but Fred Canoose never touched Alberta soil again. And as Kermit the Frog says, that's none of my business. Fred's last earthly decade went unnoted and unremarked upon in Washington. On November 6, 1922, Fred Canoose finally turned his last card. He should have been killed many times over by an angry native, rival trader, drunken gambler, or jealous husband. At the age of 74, Fred Canoose crossed the Great Divide at Tacoma, Washington, as was entombed in the city mausoleum. And it's probably good that I'm standing over here because where Fred was buried there, he was so crooked, this is probably where his body was. <laughs> Emily Chambers followed him in death in 1938. So as we've seen, he's a hard man to love. And his shadowy biography is a true life version of Yosemite Sam. He always managed to evade painful death, the hangman's noose, or even a stay in the lockup. But as they say, when it's time to print the truth or, or the legend, print the legend. That's a little fuzzier with Fred. His own actual truth was far beyond anything we can invent as legend. Thank you. Well, thank you, Gordy. Now we've uh, learned a little bit about three of the early notorious characters and explorers in, in the Pincher Creek area and so forth. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaybrown.ca. Kootenay is spelled K-O-O-T-E-N-A-I. Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum, or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive, 
in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.